Hello and welcome to the Pod of Never. This is your host, Matthew Nanez. And if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. This is a podcast about creativity, songwriting, art, you name it. I'm just basically sitting down with either my friends who are musicians or artists or people who I look up to very much. And this episode is very much that. On this episode, it is with Jonah Matrenga, who you might know from far. One Line Drawing, New Red Original, and his solo work. Uh, oh, and also Gratitude, too. How can I forget Gratitude? Anyway, we had pretty much a weekend of talking with each other. We talked for about like a good like two and a half, three hours. So I am going to make this a two-parter. Because we just get into so, so much. Uh, on this part, part one of two, we talk about his philosophy called the Zen of Suck and how it's protected him throughout his career, whether it be working with major labels when he was with Far and then J-Tree when he was with New End Original and One Line Drawing. Also, we talk about uh, how he has pioneered basically the the new music industry with his sliding scale and unique recordings, which is uh, not unlike uh, Downright. Uh, so he's pretty much the progenitor of everything that you see right now, but he just doesn't get the credit, but I am giving him the credit, and we, we talk a lot about that. And also, we talk about shutting down hecklers, uh, which might be really useful once we start getting uh, into live music a bit. Anyway, this podcast is a dream come true. I have played a, a couple shows with him along the way, so it's a really a blessing that uh, I get to talk to uh, essentially one of my heroes in, in um, who's taught me how to uh, navigate music for many, many years. So enough of my blabbling. I don't have anything to push today other than uh, my band, Swans of Never. If you like the intro music, that's my band. So you can go on Bandcamp, Spotify, and anywhere else that you find your music. Go check it out. And without any further ado, here is part one of two of my conversation with Jonah Matranga. Please enjoy. line between chaos and discipline that is i find is necessary mm. to succeed in making shit in this world amen, amen to that in this world. <laughs> yeah um i um so yeah i one thing that has become clear to me in this life of of a way that i've been able to to work this life out mm. is because i have a neat blend I, I think of myself as a 
an idealistic pragmatist or a pragmatic idealist. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people I meet and that I love very deeply and, and collaborate with and do stuff with tend to be a little dreamier than me and not quite grounded enough for me mm-hmm. to really sink in. And, and, um, and then other people are really good at the grounded, organized part, but they don't have whatever fiery, playful, dreamy vibe that I also like. Yeah. And I feel very happy at where I've landed on that spectrum. And I think it's a big part of my ability to create in a sustainable way and like living from it and all that shit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's an excellent way to start because I feel like for me as a creator and a musician, artist slash whatever, is that mm-hmm. a lot of the dreaminess either had to be have to have been like beat down almost in a sense in order for the other half to rise up. Has that, was that the case for you or um, kind of? The no, that's around? what I'm saying. I, I got, I got served a very, when I think about my ability to, to exist as an artist, to have it be my job for my whole adult life to raise my kid doing it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think of myself as a, a perfectly good singer and a good enough guitar player to play my music and, a, a, you know, perfectly good songwriter. Um, when I was in, I write about, I, I wrote a, and maybe we'll talk about this more too, but, um, and I'm not trying to plug it, sure. but fuck it. Yeah, um, it's it. part of existing too. And it's, it's natural in the conversation. I wrote a book about all this and uh, the book was incredibly instructive to me to kind of tracing the little breadcrumbs back to like how, and the reason I wrote the book was to figure out how the hell did I pull this off? Like, how did I be a dad and make a living and never get rich, but never get poor. And like, you know, and just sort of, and one thing that has been so central in my life that I always keep going back to, and I'm very grateful for is in high school, I was, I mean, I was, I I was a mess in high school. Um, And music was a real haven for me um, from the ages of, I don't know, like 12 to 16, I did about as many drugs as most people will do in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and like most actual drug users will do in their lives. Um, and so it, there was a lot going on, but sometime within that, and I, and then I, I uh, quit everything mm-hmm. at 16. I was on probation and my father was drinking himself to death. And I just had this kind of awareness like I don't think this is working out for me I, like I got to figure out a way to exist without drugs because as much as I love them I was yeah not doing well mm-hmm. so anyway that's just to set the scene so somehow within all that I had this presence of mind to really reflect on what I loved about music and what I wanted to do with it mm-hmm. and the central question was well, the central realization was I can't really trust my friends and my family to tell me if this is any good or not, mm-hmm. like what I was making, because people are just being nice and doing their thing and whatever. <laughs> and I've thought about that a lot over the years, but yeah. I realized I had to check for myself. Do I have something worthwhile to offer? Mm-hmm. Like, do I just love this or am I actually kind of good at this? And do I have something to give to the world? Um, and I don't know how long that period of introspection lasted, but when I came out of it, I had a really clean, clear realization that I'm not uh, Prince or 
Leonard Cohen or Nina Simone or Billie Holiday or Jeff Buckley or any number of people who I'd consider kind of on whatever like kind of zenith level geniuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buckley, I'm actually not, I'm, I'm going to not put him in that gang on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but with him, I'm thinking particularly of his voice. Like yeah. he has a voice that is a truly mythical creature. Like it's just insane. And so I knew I wasn't any of that. I knew I wasn't that good at guitar. I was an okay singer, but I was really kind of much more uh, kind of like pushing through it than like mm-hmm. it really flowing through my body the way I saw it happening with my friends, um, much less these geniuses that I'm talking about. And so I realized without any shame or sadness, like, okay, I'm not that. And I do have something to give. I do have some sort of spark that's worth something. And what that realization, I actually had a little high school name for it. I called it the Zen of suck. (laughs) And it's, it was just realizing comfortably like, no, I'm not a genius and I don't suck. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not the guy who picks up the guitar and everyone's just like, Oh my fucking God, he's doing it again. Like I have something that invites people in. And so I came out of that with this really beautiful feeling that basically let me make songs really. My first love was my four track recorder. Like that I consider like that my first instrument. Like I play guitar and I sing, but writing songs and creating them is my very favorite sport of all of this. And so I was able to proceed with making stuff that was terrible and high schooly and shitty and whatever else, you know. But I wasn't waiting to make Abbey Road. Mm. And I have seen so many people, incredibly talented people, people truly much more talented than me on many levels, get so hung up in their head because they're good enough to know that they're not making Kind of Blue. They're not making songs in the key of life. Mm. They're not like, and if they're not making that, then they don't consider it worthwhile. Whereas I was able to be like, I'm absolutely not making songs in the key of life right now. And I never will be able to, and I'm going to make what I make. And so it really carved out a space in my self esteem, which was very important for me to know that I didn't suck. Mm -hmm. And to also know that I wasn't some God's gift to whatever, because then as if people gave me some really heavy handed compliment, I would be able to not let that go to my head. Mm -hmm. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, if someone kind of hated what I did or criticized me in whatever way I was also able to go, nah, I don't suck. Like I, I get that you think I do and that's cool, but I had a real certainty in my body that I didn't. Mm-hmm. And that was a big, big deal for me. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but it served me so well as I went through my career as it, as it were, uh, and getting reviews and dealing with labels and dealing with managers and dealing with other bands and fans and band mates and, all the people that come and go through anyone's life, I just was able to weather that in a way that I'm so grateful for. And so I bring that all up in this context to say that that's where that balance between pragmatist and dreamer began, yeah. is that I, I think growing up poor really helped in a lot of ways. I had a real sense of like, whatever I am or I am not, I will not be like a starving artist. Like that's not interesting to me because I had actually my early life was filled with a relative amount of poverty and squalor 
that I did not want to revisit. Mm -hmm. And certainly when I was becoming a father, I really didn't want to do that. So all of my idealism, of which there is mountains um, of idealism, and was always grounded in the sense of like, I have to make this shit make sense. Mm. Like, as in, I have to be able to pay my rent doing this. Like, or I have to go get a job and have this be my little dreamy thing that I do in my spare time, mm -hmm. which is also beautiful. And that's a beautiful existence too. And I really didn't know which way, really up until I was becoming a father, I really didn't know which way my life was going to go. And when I found out I was going to be a dad, which is kind of the crux of the book, is that turning point in my life, I really um i really settled into this idea of this either needs to be again not a white picket fence existence i have no interest in that but it needs to be a safe stable existence for my daughter or else this needs to not be the center of my life yeah basically and i think yeah What's what's really interesting what you, what you say that having that self esteem and self awareness as soon as you did like you had to go through a bunch of shit to get there but for myself it took decades because I remember seeing of course we no that's that's what yeah. I'm saying I feel like this is a moment of grace in my life yeah. that I had this this fucking young I don't know how this kid in high school came up with the Zen of suck and like I was able to look at myself in this really even handed way that I still to this day think is accurate. I don't think I was wrong. Like I still have never had any illusion that I'm some, yeah, some Titan of, of rock creativity. Like it's, I love that what I've done has influenced anyone. I'm very proud of what I've done. I think what I've done is worthwhile and good. Um, and I think I've had moments of transcendence, like little tiny, like as in little moments of songs where I'm like, if I could sustain that for three minutes of a song, let alone an album, let alone a career, mm -hmm. then I'd be Stevie Wonder. Um, but I'm not, you know, and so I'll take my tiny little moments of transcendence. And I don't know how I had at such a young age, the presence of mind to hold that because there's a lot of other things in my life that I'm still finding out that I'm still learning. You know, of course, like so much of self-esteem and self-worth and just identity is a life's work and overcoming trauma. But in this particular context, I somehow had a handle on it early and I'm so, I, I just don't even know how to say thank you enough for that. It's just kind of one of those moments in life. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'll take it. But yeah, so I hear you. Yeah. yeah. And I think in like, for me, like we all have our, moments where we realize like holy crap like rock is great i want to go on tour i want to play shows and and for me like 12 years old you know i see for me it was like smashing pumpkins or like oasis or whatever sure. and and sure. you get this idea in your head like that's going to be me what do i need to do to get there and it's yeah. either you have that self-awareness of being like okay i'm not going to be great but then what happens if you do have the talent but you still have that chip on your shoulder and then you get, and yes. then when and all of a sudden the band doesn't work out and all of a sudden touring sucks. It's like, what do you do? What do you do to keep like sustaining this idea of whatever uh, mirage you set up for yourself? It, it really brings yeah. you back down to earth. And you know, I'm 35 and I feel like. Or, yeah, and or destroys. Yes, completely. And, and yeah. you know, finally I'm to the place where like, okay, well I can live how I'm living right now. I've got my family, but I can still be a creator and make yeah. something worthwhile, at least like at least expressing myself, regardless if anyone yep. um, relates to it or not. 
but um yeah yeah it, it it's yeah it's it can't be about yeah. that because then once it crosses that line like and again these are all realizations that came to me really young and i feel uh yeah kind of mystified by how it happened mm-hmm. but very grateful and so that thing you're talking about i definitely um i knew a long time ago and this was part of that too the Zenisuck thing was like I need to do this for me, which is, sounds mm-hmm. simple, but it's so easy to get lost in all the other parts of rock dreams. Actually, another thing that I had at a relatively young age was I, I kind of thought of these, my, my desire to create a, and, and sort of be a performing artist as concentric circles. And I had to really figure out and make sure that the center circle is the making of the idea mm-hmm. that I am that in love with that that even if no one gives a shit even if everyone thinks it's terrible uh any of it am i happy Mm -hmm. just doing that and then there's other concentric circles that can come in like people's approval like money like uh you know the opposite sex being attracted to me or you know whoever i'm attracted to being attracted to me um you know all those things i wanted to be honest about those things as motivations i didn't want to sort of dismiss them, but I wanted to make sure that I had the love of creativity at the heart of it, because I think when that's at the heart of it, then I'm making art. And when I slip into one of the other circles outside of that center of it, or if something else becomes a center for a while, however you want to visualize it, then it becomes craft or, or uh, entertainment mm-hmm. or any number of things that are beautiful. And, uh, and I have deep admiration for many craftsmen, whether I'm making, you know, someone's making a table or, I've often said that it's not about making music. Like I could be a plumber or a a lawyer or a teacher or anyone and be expressing myself as creatively. The creativity isn't in the making of a song. It's in the attitude of I'm doing this because I fucking adore it. And for me, that's as close to a definition of what art is versus commerce versus entertainment versus craft versus whatever that stuff is Mm. like, that's what art means to me is getting all the other shit out of the way. And am I in love with this? And if no one is listening, am I still as excited? And that's the, that's my, that's my North star Yeah. to this day. In the book you mentioned, I, I, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but my band back in Salt Lake opened for you when you were doing the water and solutions uh, tour a couple of years ago, two and a half mm-hmm. years ago or so yep. I got the book yep. and I did. And I, and I, and I read it and that's right. Yeah. We have a, we have that old context. Yeah. I'm so happy that you reminded yeah, yeah. me of that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course, of course. and when you tell me about uh, having the Zen of suck, uh, it, and then the art, the love of creating something, you were probably better off than most people going into the major label world to, oh <laughs> to navigate that. And that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like that 16 year old realization paid such dividends when I was like talking to fucking Sony. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Yes. And like, it, I can imagine, because I, I moved to Nashville, and, and speaking of craftsmen, there's a lot of musical craftsmen here as far as songwriters. Incredible. Incre- Astonishing. Yeah. Astonishing. Like great players, yeah. songwriters, but like... World class. Yes, absolutely. But like, they like a lot of people here, not everyone, but a lot of people here who move here have this like illusions of grandeur to getting that label deal yeah. or whatever else. But then if, if someone gave 
your career to them, like, okay, I've got the major label deal, put out a great record, but now I'm going to Jade Tree to put out, uh, or whatever equivalent, right. they could see that as a step down. 100%. Right. And so when that happened to you, um, I imagine this, this Zen of suck really protected you from that too, because that's it a fun massive. record too. Thriller new end. It was, Oh, I mean, look, yeah. And, and, but don't forget before J tree came along. And the only reason I got J tree was Norman Brandon, just so we're clear. Like mm-hmm. Norman from Texas is the reason I was ever on J tree. <laughs> I, I did not know any of those guys. I was not particularly <laughs> beloved in that scene. And I don't think I still ever have been in sort of this scene that I, uh, without any hubris at all, I consider myself like a, a pretty pioneering person in the, in, in the post hardcore sort of emo singer songwriter yeah. world. Um, I've never really been particularly beloved by the, by the sort of, uh, you know, the journalists, uh, what am I, like the tastemakers yeah, like of that scene. Yeah, pitchforks and things Yes, like pitchfork, yeah. exactly. That's a good one. Perfect. Yeah, the, let's just call it the pitchforks. Um, I've never been, like, no one's ever liked what I do. <laughs> and and so, and Far, I mean, Far, we didn't want to be on Sony. We wanted to be on Victory or Revelation mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, Deep Elm or some shit. And none of them wanted us. Mostly because of me, I think. Like, I was this kind of like, at the beginning of our special, I was this kind of long-haired, weird, hippie person that sang in falsetto and didn't, you know, wear a bunch of Adidas and, you know, have dreads and a bunch of tattoos and, a, you know, and, and then I didn't have the belt buckle. You know, I, I, <laughs> right. I didn't have any of that stuff. And, and I wasn't interested in it. And for whatever reason, though, they just didn't like us, you know. They, like, And so we ended up on Sony basically by accident. And... Then after that ended and we were this sort of classic misfit on the major label band and we went nowhere and far broke up. I mean, before J tree, which was, you know, there was this period between basically all of 99, I guess I would say where I was, my daughter's five, my band's broken up. I'm not on a major anymore. And it's me and my songs. And, you know, these are very, these are very early days of the internet but i had my own little website and i had people who cared about me who i had met through far and through keeping in touch and before there was a label i was i'd put out i put out sketchy one i put out sketchy two i uh started the always new project which is kind of this like way ahead of its time crowdfunded patronage thing um you know doing monthly stuff and sending out songs and all of this was predicated on this idea of I enjoy doing this and I know I have a little spark and some people seem to care about it. And that is not even that's enough for me, but like, that's fucking great Mm. for me. Like that's like, and there, you know, as you've heard in the book, like there were really timely people that came along and kind of supported me. And the J tree thing was a big and beautiful thing that happened to me. This, this sort of platform to, to put out records and, and really that, you know, 2001 through 2005 period for me is actually the most money I've ever made playing music because it was me and a guitar, but I was on a cool indie label. Um, the scene was really great. I could literally hop on a bus with like Coheed or Thursday and they'd have an a spare bunk. So I would be in their bus traveling for free 
um, and playing for these big crowds that they were doing. I was selling like, you know, I mean, not nearly as much merch as they were selling every night, but for me, like mountains of merch mm. and making really great money because my expenses were nothing and I needed nothing yeah. and I was making money. And so it, that's always what it was for me. But Jade Tree was a very fortunate thing. But before Jade Tree, I really didn't know it was going to go down. Yeah. You know, I, I had no idea, but all I knew was that I still love music and I knew there were enough people and I know how to live cheap and I know how to, yeah, create in really sustainable ways, basically. Yeah. It, um, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's amazing because I have conversations with other musician friends about Patreon or, or home recording. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've known about you and your music for, for a long, for a long time, <laughs> a very long time. And it just kind of hit me, especially when I, I reached out to you, because I've always wanted to uh, re- reach out to you about like just having a conversation, because I know you've you have a wealth of, of experience. And I was like, holy shit, Jonah's the progenitor of so much that's happening right now. It's, I mean, I'll say, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's I got the receipts, you know, sliding scale, crowdfunder yes. patronage, like I'll call it like I don't. Uh, personal like unique recordings, personal recordings, custom recordings. Like when I thought of the idea of unique recordings, Mm -hmm. I remember very clearly and I looked all over the internet and I found one human being making them. He was a guy called Peter Himmelman. Um, And even he was making them when I dug into his pricing structure, he was making them in a much more um, fancy way basically Mm -hmm. than me and charging a lot more than I wanted to charge because my goal was to, to make something that was a little more like fine art, but that it was available to someone living a normal life, yeah. you know, not with a bunch of money to throw around on a fucking someone making them a song. Um, but so yes, all of these <laughs> things, I really love that you, n- that you know this about me and that you, that, you know, that, that you, you're, you're one of the people I counted on, mm. like literally, like I counted on people giving a shit that I was trying to do this this way and following along and being interested in that conversation with me. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's not something I spend too much time on and I feel also very luckily I don't have a very, uh, I mean, I can be as envious as the next person or whatever, mm-hmm. but I don't generally worry about what didn't happen for me. I'm just grateful for what did. Yeah. And I'm not like, that's not some like, I guess I've done a bunch of, you know, self care work, I guess over the years, but mostly just feels like a kind of a moment of grace for me that I was, and am able to not bemoan that, but also own it mm-hmm. and go like, nah, I kind of invented that. <laughs> like, you know, um, this is the truth. I, mean, you know, I did it. I did it way before a bunch of other people were doing yeah. it. You know, I mean, whatever, whatever that means, you know, um, and, and it's one of those things that it doesn't mean that much to me, but I think the thing that's taken a while is for me to, to just actually stand in that with like, yeah, with just kind of like, yeah, that feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, and but without that sort of sense of like, I know so many people that are so bitter that they didn't get what they think they deserved in the industry. And I think I ended up exactly where I'm supposed to. Like, I don't think I was I still don't think I've ever been particularly good at interfacing with larger companies, with larger entities. Um, I, I think I have some money issues where I do have some fear of success. And I think I have a shoot myself in the foot kind of gene a little bit. Um, and a lot of my favorite artists do as well, whether it's Billie Holiday or Neil Young or, you know, like, and obviously they're very successful people. So I'm not comparing myself to them, but I've, anyone who knows their career knows that, or Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. even like 
knows that when he did a lot of his moves, people didn't think of them as genius back then. Oh, people no. looked at them as completely self-destructive career busters, which they kind of were, but then they turned out not to be. And those are my inspirations. And that's who I have always sort of followed. So for me, if I were the kind of person to end up sitting here kind of bitter that I never had my stadium success, I would not consider myself a very self-aware person. Um, Cause I know the moves I've made and the decisions I've made and when I've said yes and when I've said no. And, you know, I generally think after a certain level of privilege, we kind of get what we choose. Mm. Like there's not a lot of other things to that. So, but I feel lucky again for that presence of mind to not be stuck in this thing of like, man, I did all this. What, you know, yeah. like whatever. It just, this stuff, it's, this is energy wasted. It's painful stuff. Yeah. And, and for me, especially back then, cause of course, like, your first concerts, usually, like, if you love rock and roll, your first concert's usually the stadium show. And then sure. and then, and then it goes down. You, you realize, like, okay, there's a scene going on here. And I remember my mind being blown that uh, X band's uh, merch was, like, 10 bucks, right? But then, right, right. But then, I think for me, when it comes to you, and this podcast, I swear, isn't just blow, uh, blowing smoke up your skirt the whole time. It's all, no, <laughs> wait, we're go, we're gonna go back to the Zen of suck yeah. again. I am immune to smoke right. blowing, and <laughs> I, and the other thing I have to say is, and I don't consider that's what you're doing. Mm. To me, I I think it was Chris Cornell actually who I read an interview that about some interaction he had with a with a fan or something at some big festival he was playing and. And he said, sincerity never gets old. And I can sniff out when someone is complimenting me in a way that's kind of saying they want to be connected to me, basically, and like have a little bit of whatever they think like comes from that. Or I don't know what their motivation is. But I think I can tell pretty well when it's someone who actually gives a shit. Um, so I wouldn't be nearly as interested in this conversation if I didn't think you gave a shit. And so I appreciate oh, no it. Problem. And I'm also immune to it because I, I feel pretty I, feel, I know who i am and so I, so please say all the nice things you want because i'm also a leo and i'll fucking take that <laughs> yes yeah. so, so i don't i can't remember the first show exactly but i remember this moment um this might have been the first show i saw you at i believe it was either the movie life or the coheed and cambria because it was in the same venue in salt lake city so they're kind of like inner <laughs> interwoven for me but i remember going to your merch table so wait, yeah where would this where would this have been in salt lake because i remember kilby i remember deviate Downstairs deviate. Okay, deviate. Yeah, yeah. and okay. um, I remember seeing the sliding scale. So, like, say, yeah, visitor yeah. eight to twelve bucks, uh, sketchy EP yeah. five to whatever, and like, yeah, I was just like, huh, like I just remember being like, okay, yeah. a that's cool as like a, a teenager, sixteen, seventeen year old TJ, teenager, but it was that moment that gave me that like spark of being like, there's a different way for this to happen. Yeah. And I, and yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Well, no, you go, yeah. you, but I'm going to grab something to, to do something to make sure I get it right. But keep talking second yeah, here right. in my ear. Um, but I remember I had an opportunity to join this band when I was 18 and this is well documented on the, on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, but there were labels, there were tours being lined up and that was around the time where you've got like your Thursdays and taking back Sundays, all the days of the week, yep. um, they were getting this success and the scene in general is being lifted up. So there was a lot of money coming yes. in. Yes. And I remember in particular, after I joined this band, I saw you at Kilby and you played live and small. 
mm-hmm. especially with like all the things I've learned along with you. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like what is happening? And that was kind of like my first taste of, okay, what are, what are the um, motivations behind what I'm, what I'm doing ultimately? And so that was yes. like the first like prick of the, <laughs> not so much the conscience, because I, I do feel like I was going towards what I really wanted to do, but it was the how at that point. I didn't know what the how yeah. was. I, I knew the what, but the how to do it, I was like, oh, okay. And that's, and again, that's the pragmatic idealist. Like knowing what one wants is fine, but the how is the pragmatic part. That's the, yeah. that's the little bridge that needs to be drawn. So, yeah, so I just wanted to, I picked up, uh, um, a copy of Sketchy One off my little bookshelf because awesome. um, I keep these physical things to remind me of what has happened. Um, kind of like one copy of each. And so, yeah, this uh, yeah, this album should cost between 5 and $10. And that was basically me combining two things, big things in my life. One is that, um, as, again, if you've read about, but other people who haven't read the book, I, I used to be a paper boy. It was one of my very first jobs. And I would we were basically the, you know, one of the poorer families on our street. We were on an okay street, but we were, we had just moved there from again, a very poor neighborhood and people would throw away things that looked so useful to me, like toaster ovens and shit, Mm -hmm. like movie cameras and projectors. And, and I would just gather them on my paper route. And then every few weeks I would have yard sales and sell this stuff that I had literally found on the street (laughs) And I didn't really know how much it cost. And I, even then, I didn't want to be bothered with pricing things. So my mom literally like found me a flyer that like I wrote, pick your price yard sale. And it's, that's why I call my shit the yard sale, sale like on my website and stuff, because I literally had yard sales. And it's one of the early ways that I like made money and learned about all this stuff. And so it was a combination of that. That's where I learned sliding scale and that I loved that. Um, and then... When I saw, and here's where the legacy part comes in, like, and I love that I was part of your journey, and I saw Fugazi right on their records, do not pay more than X dollars for this album. Mm-hmm. Like, and I was in love with that with me, and that's, lit- that's why I wrote that on Sketchy, which is you know the first thing I did on my own, was because I just love that they set that, and that was the days where I was still doing consignment stuff to stores, right. and... I mean, eventually Sketchy One came out on Crank Records. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I was, it, that was a total Fugazi move, basically. Yeah. But Fugazi with a twist yeah. of sliding scale. Yeah. And then as far as like my education goes at that time, so I had you, but then I discovered Fugazi. And then you learn about right. the, the, not so much the culture, but just the the legend of how to conduct yourself in in this way where it doesn't, and yeah. culture's not a bad word, yeah. man. Culture's not bad. Like that, they really more than any band I know of. They have, they had a culture around them in terms of the people, but within the band, the more I learned about them, like taking their own sound system mm-hmm. on tour, taking, um, which again that happens in other genres a little bit more, but um, but it was a brilliant adaptation for them, and I mean taking their own like washing machine and dryer on tour. And, I didn't know that. Like, wow. No, I mean, they've, they've gone, like, I, I often refer to Fugazi as, like, the band that makes all excuses impossible, because any any cool thing that I've ever, like, not that I've not done my own thing, but, like, they did it so fucking pure. 
like the five dollar mm-hmm. thing, the no t shirts thing, the writing it on the record thing. And they made that possible again with idealistic pragmatism and pragmatic idealism. Because they were like, no, we want to be a self contained unit that doesn't operate under the same rules that are dictated to us by where the music industry was mm-hmm. at. And I just I am forever enamored of them for that. And they just I think any time someone says like ah that's unrealistic i'm like yeah no it's not like someone did that and made it work and they're called fugazi yeah um so like don't do it if you don't want to do it go sign to a major if you want go do whatever it is you want to do like i've been on majors i got no judgment but don't pretend you have to right like especially in in, in 2020 like it's amazing as far as like the the gatekeeping as far as the label thing yeah. now it's i feel like even if you're a soundcloud rapper or aspiring pop artist there's really no excuse anymore because everything is just it's gone now like you can do whatever you want at this point and it's and it's great it's awesome yeah. you know it is it is great it is no 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 technologically speaking possibility speaking it is wild and wonderful mm-hmm. and i hope people are having fun with it it's one of the deep sadnesses I have about the internet and where it ended up, especially in terms of how it ended up for artists, is that, well, that a thing like Spotify exists, yeah. honestly, because what the internet could have been, musically speaking, is a bunch of interlocked websites where you could go and visit different artists and with micropayments and technology that's come mm-hmm. out, like, you know, since there would be such wonderful fluid ways to interact with artists. There mm. are such wonderful fluid ways, but sadly they have been very poorly monetized and there's right. very poor infrastructure around true DIY artist existence. There's almost always still, you talk about gatekeepers, like the, you know, people want to t- talk shit about the major label system. I've always said that that's fine and they've done whatever they've done, but, the the top heavy nature of the music industry what spotify is doing makes the major labels look like uh, like an arts fund <laughs> like a beautiful socialist arts fund like it it is it is so much worse for an artist in terms of what they're able to earn oh, unless yes. they're willing to be incredibly creative in their journey and utilize these forces for themselves not to and here's the trick though like i don't have any illusions that i could doing the way i'm doing it ever get eight gazillion streams on spotify or whatever i don't know exactly how that works but yeah it sort of works if a soundcloud rapper blows up and stuff but i've seen how the sausage gets made and there's almost always a money person at some point along the line giving that person a big shove and taking a lot for their investment like the 360 deals that exist mm-hmm. now where people just like where if you get signed like they take a part of your merch and your publishing and your fucking like everything mm-hmm. it's it's really depressing for me because there was a little window there where we artists really could have done some shit as a collective mm-hmm. and i remember i was meeting with a a group called the content creators coalition. I don't know if they've changed their name since then, but John McRae from cake is the guy that, that kind of hipped me to it. Um, and I went to a meeting in San Francisco and it was kind of when artists were really starting to kick back against early Spotify. Mm-hmm. 
and say, fuck you, pay us more, basically. And they were all talking about, I remember the guy from Cracker was there, David Lowry. Um, they were all talking about legal stuff mm -hmm. and like, uh, you know, going and testifying and, you know, creating better laws. And, and I love that. That's beautiful work yeah. to do. It's not necessarily work I'm interested in, but I, I appreciate it and I admire it. Um, but I was looking around the room you know, I got Tom Waits was there. Like I got Tom Waits, I got Cracker and Camperman Beethoven and Cake and all these other artists doing pretty fucking well, doing better than me. Um, and I was doing okay too. And I was looking around going like, why don't we just start our own platform yeah. that goes by our rules and where we pay out in really equitable ways. And, and it's, we have the technology, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And Tom Waits in particular, God bless him. He was so honest about it. He just, and I'm not even going to try and do my terrible Tom Waits impersonation, but, uh, but he basically said, look, I hear you and I've kind of done okay in this system as it is. So I, I don't really have that much to complain about. And, you know, and a lot of people, you know, I don't own my far masters. I don't even own my J tree masters, you know, um, it, so a lot of people were kind of stuck already in this stuff. But anyway, my contribution to that meeting was to say, we could totally do this ourselves and it would be a pain in the ass, but we could actually build this infrastructure. And if I had more energy for those kind of industrious things, like uh, all along throughout my existence as an artist, people have come to me saying, you should do this for all these art art. You should create a platform like, well, Bob Nana from Braid created a platform mm -hmm. called Downright where people can order custom songs. And he wanted me to be on it. And, and I love Bob. He's amazing. And I love that he did that. And I was never just in building that. I was just doing it myself. And if someone else wants to make custom recordings, they can do that too. Um, but I love that he built that platform and I respect that kind of industriousness. And I've just never really had that. I just kind of do it because I love mm -hmm. doing it. Um, but I'm really sad that we didn't get together as this new language of commerce was being formed around art, basically post-Napster, when people are figuring out what the hell is going to happen. Um, I'm sad. I think we fucked that up. I think we missed a huge, huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel very excited for artists that are coming out now, because you're right, there is endless possibility, and someone can literally record something and put it on SoundCloud or Spotify or anywhere, like, and have it in the, it is a very level playing field in a way. And in a way it's, it's much less level even than it was back in the days of major labels and indie labels, honestly, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a bummer. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Yeah, yeah. Cause like monetarily speaking, you're correct. Cause like I found, for instance, for myself, I found uh, some EPs in a box somewhere. I'm like, Oh, I could sell these. But then I realized like the, the economy of it all is like, well, you know, it's X amount of dollars to send out. I don't know if yeah. like, and so as far as like goods like that, um, at least like the smaller, yeah. like the more introductory type of yeah. physical goods, like it's not there anymore. Yeah. And then I see my payments no. from Spotify and know how much it is. <laughs> and I'm, I'm me. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's depressing. Yeah. And yeah. just one, one more point I wanted to point out, like, as far as, like, the, the technological aspect of it, because, like, what you're describing with having, bringing everyone together, together and, and having this platform, that would, that would essentially put you as some sort of, uh, 
I'm losing the word for it right now. But like you're doing what everyone's doing in San Francisco right now, as far as like the tech aspect or uh, the folks like making these startups of like uh, Patreon, you know, that sure. San Francisco. Startup. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah, the Patreon people like God bless them. I don't know them at all. Um, and I have my feelings about Patreon, of course, because I have my feelings about everything. Um, but yeah, exactly. They're people who, yeah, they made this insane, amazing thing and got rich doing it. And I totally respect it. And I, it's my, see, I always have these tertiary stories, but I was talking to my uncle back in the day and he was telling me this great instructive story about how the gold miners came to, you know, to try and get rich um, in the gold rush. And this one dude looked around and said, yeah, I can mine for gold, but also I can make shovels to sell to the miners. Um, And that dude got real rich doing that. And that dude is named Levi Strauss and he made clothes and basically mining supplies. And that's the beginning as far as I know of Mm -hmm. Levi's. And my uncle's telling me this story to basically tell me to not worry so much about finding the gold, but, but making some shovels. And I respect that idea. And I understand that if you, anyone out there who wants to make money in this world, don't try and do your dream, build a business that facilitates other people doing their dream. That's where the money is. Mm. Like, just in case you're curious. But what I discovered in that moment was that I'm a miner and not that I, not that I'm a miner for the fortune of the gold part, but, and now we're really close to a Neil Young song. That's really I funny. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't realize until that sentence arrived. Um, but the gold I'm interested in is the song, is the idea, is the creativity. And that I work so fucking hard on so much stuff that no one will ever hear or or very few people ever hear. And we're back to this beginning thing because that's, that's it for me. Like I'm done when it's done. And the part that comes after I get to make a living, I, I put just enough attention on that, that I get to make a living doing this. And I give it no more energy than that because I'm just not, I just, I'm a, the way in which I'm essentially an idealist is I don't believe anyone really should do anything they don't want to do. Um, and I understand that there are levels of privilege attached to that. And there are people that are literally trying to survive and they got to fucking do what they got to do. But once you're past that survival place, I know for myself, I have no excuse. Like there's no obligation in this world. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> white dude in America. I can do a lot for like, I can get by like money isn't going to be a problem as long as I can show up in some basic way. Um, so I don't, so I'll work real hard if I'm in love with something, but I actually have a terrible work ethic and I've always known that about myself. So even if I had an idea, yeah, if I wanted to have done Patreon 10, 15 years before it was done or, or do what Bob did with downright, like, I just not me. Right. And I just know that about myself. And I don't, it's not like in a way that's mean to myself or that I'm incapable of it. It's actually more realistic. Like I actually don't like doing that stuff that much. And even if I did it and was success at it, I don't think I'd be particularly happy because I'm a very, and I believe everyone is honestly, but I, I experience myself as a very passion driven person mm-hmm. and I am the happiest when I'm as close to that as possible. And then I do the other stuff to kind of get by and make it work. But, 
it's uh it's interesting anyway yeah, I, yeah. I find myself yeah. in, in the same way but I, and just one small thing to know i think i still think it's great mm. for your website that you've made that work for yourself as far as the sliding scale Thank you. and in and if people want more and they want the demos or anything else they can chip in a little bit. It was like what three bucks or something, and I feel like that's or maybe I can't remember exactly, but it's, no, no, you're right, you're right. Yeah. It's three bucks. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very. I make, and that it's funny that circling back to this website, this whole thing. Like at the beginning of my existence, the post far and even in far, but post far for sure, my existence was all predicated around my friend. And back in the day, believe it or not, like in 1999, making a website as in literally getting the DNS, whatever the fuck <laughs> stuff, was a serious process, a process that I was not up for. I luckily had a friend called Mark Moore who was really into that shit, and he built me my first website and got me onelinedrawing.com, which at the time, again, you couldn't just go on mm. GoDaddy and like get your fucking website. Like It was a whole process that was insane looking back on it. And so I was so into that. And for a while, my website and my mailing list, I existed totally off that. I could send out a mailing list thing and people would buy stuff and it would support me. And then, you know, there was, so there was Makeout Club and then there was mm -hmm. Friendster and then there was MySpace. And MySpace was the first one to really be there for mm -hmm. artists. Um, Agreed. And there was a time when I could send out a MySpace bulletin and I felt sad at the time because I had this carefully curated personal email list that I'd had for years and I could send out one goddamn MySpace bulletin at the peak of MySpace and do more business than my it's whole insane. stupid email list. And, and it was a really interesting time and I was very sad because what I realized was that all of a sudden my fortune, my fortunes rose and fell with MySpace. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in control of that anymore because if that platform goes away as it did, anyone who, had a bunch of stuff, you know, sort of personal equity in that place of, as an artist, your whole audience is gone. You didn't own that mailing list. You didn't own those, like, you know, and so I've always played with social networks and tried to utilize them. But I would say the era between MySpace and the development of Facebook taking over everything is where artists, again, really lost that DIY control. Mm -hmm. um, and for a while, I kind of surrendered to that, and I was like, ah, fuck it, man. Like, no one goes to websites anymore, and I kept a website, but I didn't pay that much attention to it, and I just kind of kept it moving. But at some point in the last few years, I was like, fuck this. Like, I'm going back to the way the internet was. I don't care if an income's with me. I'm going to make a super exhaustive, amazing website. Anyone can visit wants to. If they want to give me a few bucks a month, they can have access to more music than they will ever have time to listen to and, you know, be in touch with me in a really personal way. Like, all the things I love about the internet. Um, and it's done pretty good, actually. Like, it's, you know, it's not been this, like, amazing thing, and I never expected it to be. I just have fun mm -hmm. making it and maintaining it now. But it's a very old-school, antiquated concept at this point. Like, it's... But it works. I don't. I don't know any <laughs> other artists that really take their own websites very seriously. Honestly, but they should um, for, for what you're saying. I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm the guy over here that's like, no, this is the way to fucking do this. And I just, I feel lonely sometimes. Um, I wish I had more company doing it, and people didn't look like me as fucking crazy for doing it. But, but I love it, and I really appreciate you even know about it because I don't even. 
talk about it that much, but actually recently, partly to curb my social network appetites and all the compulsion that they drive, I decided that whenever possible, I would write and post on my website, on my little blog that no one goes to, just so I create it there, and then I would share that link mm. to social networks yeah. and say, and I and I do a little bullet point, and that this this way, you know, for this is only the last couple of months, honestly, um, where I'll write a little blurb about something, and basically, it's like if you want to know more, come yeah. here, and it's okay if you don't like, but I refuse at this point to give more energy than it is basically necessary to exist on a social network. I just, I am, I just decided that even though the world is gone more and more increasingly in the direction of social networks and gatekeepers and people that take our money, um, and unnecessarily get between us and anyone who cares about our art. I'm just like, fuck it, man. I'm Don Quixote <laughs> out there at windmills. Like I got my website. So I appreciate you oh, calling it out. Sure. I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah. one thing I definitely want to want to touch on is, um, you know, when we started talking about doing this, I was I went on a YouTube rabbit hole, and I remember one of the first YouTube videos I've ever seen was you opening for Thursday with Ian, and the crowd is nuts. I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like probably three to four thousand people in my like. It looked like it's a massive ballroom show. That was I was I was on tour with Thursday in England. Uh, we were playing, I believe, the Astoria, which I think is a twenty. Well, it's gone. I'm so fucking sad about this. Uh, it's a twenty five hundred seater. Okay, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it, it was like. a big dog. And then, yeah. So I remember yeah. that was like one of my first YouTube memories. And then this week, I read across a video where you're playing in Germany, you're headlining and you're playing, I forget what you're playing. You're playing hostage and, and people are just talking and you're standing your, your ground, but there's other times where like, a, you have to stand your ground and B there are other moments where it's not as confrontational, but you're sharing what you believe. Right. And yes. you're very confident in that. Yes. I remember yes. at a show that I was playing with you on, I tried doing that myself and it came out awful. <laughs> You know, it's it's a real yeah. tightrope, and it doesn't always go well. I've I've taken yeah. a lot of shit for it over the years, and and sometimes, as you astutely point out, like it. Basically, my rule is this: if the whole room is talking, then I kind of consider it my job to captivate them or mm. not. Like, or not even my job, but like, if they want to be with me, they can be with me. I'm here; they can be with me. And if the room collectively has decided that they don't care about me then I'm yeah. cool. Like I just do my thing and I, I rarely say anything about it. But if I experience a majority of the room as being interested in a more intimate moment and a minority of people are fucking mm -hmm. that up, then I'll go at them. And so that the video that he is referring to everybody <laughs> is this video where we're starting out. Yeah. Playing this, like it's me and a one other dude like on stage and I felt a vibe in the room. It felt real good, mm -hmm. but there were these fucking little rascals up front who were just talking shit. And I could see visibly, you know, real clearly that they're screwing up the vibe for the people mm -hmm. around them. And I swear that stuff is never about me and my ego. It's actually just about protecting the experience of the room. And if someone else is, you know, the, the line that became, you know, like really instructive for me that came out very naturally in that moment was like, I know that not everyone paid, to come see me tonight, but fucking no one came to hear you mm. talk. And that 
as you can see in the like it 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 changes the whole energy of the room and then i launch into the yeah. song and it just it's a very beautiful moment and i'm so happy it's preserved um and i love that you saw it because it's one of my favorite moments and but then yeah other times you'll see videos where i just i don't say anything it's always any time i've ever gotten to a confrontation for better or for worse with people at a show about that it's it's got to do with protecting what I consider to be the integrity and the intimacy of the room. If there's a potential mm. for that, it's never about me. Mm -hmm. It's about the trying to be a good steward of the collective experience that I'm trying to create for mm -hmm. people. Um, but that's a collective decision. Like I'm one person up there. Like if there's yeah, whatever, two people, 20 people, 200 people, 2000 people, it doesn't in the room they outnumber me immediately and sometimes by a lot. So it's a collective decision. And I always try and remind people that like, we're choosing this together. Like I'm not going to magically make it quiet. Like you're the ones that's going to make this quiet. Like, um, so anyway, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, that's it, in that Germany video, I, you said the exact same thing in Germany. It was like, exactly. Look, it's if, if no one no, else, yeah, and sometimes I'll try and it just won't yeah. go well. Yeah. And, and as far yeah. as being yeah. in that opening slot, uh, where you're yes. playing yes. some, the movie lives fans, the Thursdays fans, or whoever sure, else, sure, sure, and especially like at heart, like the they have those bands have some sliver of, of hardcore to them, but you've also sure. op opened up, I'm sure, for heavier bands at one point, and, oh. and so <laughs> and so for me, I and mean, as is written about in the book, like the tales of far opening for Monster Magnet are, <laughs> you know. You want to talk about you want to talk about an audience hating a performer like I can tell you all about that because I've yeah lived it. and didn't so and didn't uh, you mention like homophobic slurs being thrown at you like at that tour oh huge yeah. huge I mean just just I have had ah uh, yeah, I, I, yeah yeah I've had some really horrible shit yeah. said to me for sure and so yeah. when you yes. when you're in that moment where you're trying to I don't know what I don't know what your mind frame is, but I remember back in the day for me it was more confrontational. Like I'm going to win you over, uh, but then yeah, yeah. So when you're expressing yourself on stage, whether it be banter, when you're talking about like if you're talking about yeah. activism or whatever else, um, yeah, yeah. How do you approach that as far as where you're coming from? We're all back to the, all of this comes back to the Zen of Suck Man. This is a great circular conversation because. I remember being on tour with Further Seems Forever in 2001 or maybe early 2002 or something like that. It was certainly, at, maybe it was just, just after September 11th, 2001. Mm. Um, but through the South mm. and having people, uh, you know, I would try and talk about how misguided I thought the Iraq war was and stuff. And, Kids, you know, these are like hardcore kids, ostensibly like Christian mm -hmm. kids at being a further show, like screaming the, like not at me, but just like the worst racial epithets, like, you know, towel head and just like crazy yeah. shit, like sand N word, you know, like really intense shit. And I'm sitting there like, what the fuck is even happening? But why it comes back to the Zen of suck is that I'm going to say what I need to say. I think it's worthwhile. I don't think I'm some genius. I don't think I'm someone, I'm not a fucking cult leader. Like no one needs to follow me. Like I'm over here doing my thing, but what I have to say is worthwhile and who I am is worthwhile. And I'm going to say it and you get to scream at me 
and you get to do whatever you need to do, but it's not going to change where I'm at. And to your point, earlier in my life, I, I grew up around a lot of anger. And so I know a lot about emotional intensity. I can do that sport real well. I can fight real mm -hmm. well. And I used to be a little more addicted to it. Um, and I used to not be as in control of my own emotions. And I'd really kind of get going and get invested in these back and forth things. And looking back on it, I'm kind of embarrassed about it. And I don't feel like it was, you know, a great look for me. And I don't think it did anyone any good. But it was where I was at at the time. But point being, once I got that under control, I got back to the center of what was true, which is like, yeah, I'm going to say what I need to say in this world. Mm -hmm. And I know full well that not everyone is going to be interested in that. And maybe even not even close to a majority of people are ever going to be interested in that. Um, and sometimes I've been very lonely in my life um, because I have ideas that are outside of what people want to talk about at a rock and roll show. Um, and it's funny that you're doing a podcast this is another thing I've never gotten it together to do, but I really want to do a podcast someday. that's just called less rock, more talk um, and, and talk to my favorite artists about political stuff and all the stuff they want to try and, and all the conversations you're bringing up of like, how do you try and talk about this stuff in the context of a rock show? Yeah. Have you done it successfully? Have you, what, what's the funniest time you failed, you know? And, um, and I've got, I've got a lot of both. Yeah. I've had some really magical, amazing, collective, wonderful moments. And I have had nights where I completely pissed off an entire room of people just trying to talk about peace. Mm. You know, <laughs> I ran ironically, you know, just like, um, and thank you, baby. I got to go in a sec. Um, and I'm also, uh, I, I'm a person who's dealt a lot of codependency in my life um, and, and not knowing where my feelings end and someone else's feelings begin. And it's a lot of, it's a long story that we can talk about more later if you want to. But um, through that, I've really gotten a sense of like, I can only control what I can control. Mm -hmm. And what I can control is how I express myself and what I say. I can't control even one other person, much less a thousand other people. Um, so yeah, it's sort of a, it's a, it's, I would consider that a life's work. Yeah. Like I'm always working on that in myself and making sure that I am not trying to control other people, but just say it. Cause I want to say it. So I think at least for me in, in that moment where, you know, where I would say things in at shows or whatever and speak my mind, yeah. I think from, like I said, when I was younger, it was always this like confrontation I'm going to win. Yeah. And so, same. Yeah. and so I think it really needs to come from a place of less ego, less pride and just exp expressing what you're yeah. going to express, but like being okay with someone, a, maybe having a different, a different viewpoint yeah. than you or being open to be just being wrong. In the first place, yeah. <laughs> or and, and if you really believe what you believe, like, sure, stand in it. But, um, but I think there's a difference between confident and being a dick. Too. <laughs> yeah, and I've 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 done both, <laughs> um, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's like I say that that part's a real. I've done a lot of work around it, and I feel happy about it. And I've just kind of grown up a little bit. And luckily, I, I never got in fistfights, and it never got too bad. But just some really dumb arguments, mm -hmm. you know, just stupid stuff that really didn't change anyone's mind, didn't do anything for anybody. Yep. 
just kind of got everybody upset. Um, and it's at the time in my life, it's kind of all I knew. And so I had to learn, you know, but you know, there yeah. you go. So that is the end of part one of my conversation with Jonah Matrenga. And believe it or not, we have a lot more to go. So thank you so much for checking it out. And I hope to see you for the next episode, wrapping up the conversation. Thank you so much.